Those songs really bring out what we're trying to say today in our, in our message as we get ready to worship the Lord through the study of His Word. We are still in our uh, study in the book of Acts. We will be for quite some time. Um, I've decided to kind of slow down our study a little bit as I've gone through it. It's like there is a lot in here that we need to talk about. and We can't just fly through this thing at the speed of light. We need to take a little bit of time and figure out what it is that the Lord is telling us. And so we're going to be in it for a while. If you open your Bibles, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. I want to start out by just saying that uh, for those of us who were here Wednesday night for community group, we watched the documentary, The Insanity of God, uh, which is a book that was written by a Southern Baptist missionary named Nick Ripkin. Uh, his, it's not his real name, by the way. And uh, we heard stories about the struggle that his family, while serving in various places as missionaries, uh, had, including Somalia, where they spent a great deal of time. And while they were in Somalia, one of their sons died. And when they left Somalia, God changed Nick's focus to look into places where Christians have been persecuted and dealt with hardship as they were missionaries, or as it, just because of their faith in Jesus. And we heard this one story of Dimitri. Now, if, if you've heard this story, it still doesn't matter how many times, how many times I read the story, how many times I've heard the story, it, it's, it's incredible. Demetrius is a father who wanted his children to know Jesus, so he started a Bible study with them. And the study brought other people because they wanted to learn about Jesus too. And soon he had a home church of about 70 people. I'm going to really speed this story up because it's long, but it's great. But this was during the time of the communist regime in the Soviet Union, and religion was banned, especially Christianity. So Dimitri was arrested for having a home church and sent to prison. And during his 17 years in prison, this is the part that always gets me no matter what, he would every day wake up and stand to the east and sing his heart song to the Lord and be chided and mocked by the other prisoners. He would take any little scrap of paper he could find and he would write, every Bible verse he could remember, and there was a post in his cell that was damp, and he would stick it on the post. And then the guards would find it, of course, and then they would beat him and tell him to never do it again. But it never deterred Dimitri to stop. He continued to get up every single day, turn to the east, and sing his song to the Lord, and to stick those notes up on the post. Well, one day, the guards were really out to get him. And they decided that in order to get to him, they were going to have to attack his family or make him think so. And so they took a woman and dressed her like his wife and dragged, him past, dragged her past his cell while he was watching into a room where he could hear her being beaten and killed. And Dimitri had had enough at that point. And he was ready to give up. He was ready to renounce Jesus. And then one night, the Lord opened up his mind and his heart, and he heard 
his wife and his children praying for him. And he knew that they were alive. And he was not going to give up. He was not going to renounce his faith. And so when the guards came to have him sign the form that would have allowed him to be free, all he had to do is, is renounce his faith in Jesus. He said, I will not. I will not renounce my faith. My, my family is alive. <clears throat> and to shorten the story, as he, the guards were dragging him away, all of the prisoners who had mocked him stood up, faced the east, and sang his heart to the Lord. This is the power of the gospel when it is preached in places that haven't heard it. Persecution moves the church. Why do I tell you this story? Because the passage that we're looking at, it begins with persecution. In order to truly understand Acts 4 through 8, we have to go back to verse 1 again, which we talked about briefly last week. Stephen has been martyred. He has been killed for his faith in Jesus. And after Stephen's death, the opposition led by Saul, who we will get to know as Paul in a few weeks, began persecuting the church. And the believers, except the apostles, they were scattered about into all Judea and Samaria. And this fulfilled what Jesus had told them would happen back in Acts 1.8, when he said that you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Up to this point, the church had been confined to Jerusalem. It had not moved into Judea and Samaria, let alone into the rest of the earth. But it's very interesting to understand this, that God used the hatred of the opposition to the gospel and the persecution of believers to move the church and fulfill his mission and to begin its journey throughout all the world. Now we can look back to the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see how the opposition to Jesus thought they had solved the problem by killing Jesus. Remember the crucifixion? Who could forget that? But they didn't, did they? They didn't because they found out that death couldn't hold him. And the stone was moved and Jesus walked out three days later alive. And he is alive and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father as we await his return. Jesus' message and the gospel cannot be stopped no matter how hard they try. And this is what we are going to read about today. It could not be kept down. It is alive and well. Now we see the opposition thinking they can stop the movement of the gospel of Jesus and his mission by persecuting and killing the church. But what happened? Instead, they hastened the movement and allowed it to do exactly what Jesus had called it to do, to spread out and live. Is that not great? Is that not great? Let's read Acts 4 through 8 and pray and get started. Acts 8, starting in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, the, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many 
who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for the power of your word, the power of your gospel message. We pray and thanks, Lord, for the power of your mission and how it cannot be stopped. Father God, we are grateful that you've called us to be your people. And Lord, I pray that this morning as I preach that your words would, would speak through me, Lord. That the things that you had me write down, Lord, that they would be your words and you would proclaim them. I pray, God, that you would open our hearts and minds to what it is that you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point is that the proclamation of the gospel. There's three points today in the proclamation of the gospel, and we'll find that in, in verses 4 and 5. Let's read them again. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So those who were scattered were proclaiming the word wherever they went. Now, they were preaching what? They were preaching the word. Now, this word for word in the Greek is logos. This is the same word that John used in John 1.1 when he writes, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word, this is the word that they were preaching. This word was Jesus. He is the Logos. And they were preaching the name of Jesus, what he had done, what he has taught, how to receive forgiveness and be reconciled to God, how to be regenerated and be born again by the Spirit and become a new creation born in the image of Jesus, God's Messiah, his only begotten Son. The very word Saul and his persecutors were trying to stop was being proclaimed. The lesson for us to take away by observing what is happening here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. It's unstoppable because it is God's will to have it proclaimed throughout the world to all tribes and nations, to call all God's people to himself. And this is why Jesus died. And God will not let the suffering and the obedience of his son go for nothing. It has a purpose, and that purpose will be fulfilled. What we are observing through Luke's words is the beginning of the movement of the church and the gospel. And you and I, you and I are living church history right now as it continues to move forward and through our lives. Does that not get you excited? And does that not want you to be a part of this? You are a part of God's story that continues through eternity. You are. I am. It's awesome, is it not? John Calvin wrote this in his Institutes. He says, I say that not only they who labor for the defense of the gospel but they who in any way maintain the cause of righteousness suffer persecution for righteousness. Therefore, whether in declaring God's truth against Satan's falsehoods or in taking up the protection of the good and innocent against the wrongs of the wicked, we must undergo the offenses and hatred of the world which may imperil either our life, our fortunes, or our honor. 
all of us at some point in our life is going to suffer for our faith. It may not mean that we're going to suffer to the point of death, but we are going to suffer rejection. We are going to suffer hurt. We are going to suffer things from people even inside the church. I tell new believers that not to base their faith on how they are treated when they come to church because at some point you're going to be hurt by somebody in the church and that's not God's fault. I've had family members who've felt like they were hurt in the church and they turned their backs on God, blaming him. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. What we can learn from Luke and Calvin is that we will face opposition. We will. Now, most of us will not face it so great again like it will cost us our lives, but what if it did? What if it did cost us our lives? When we think back to the last couple weeks of what we learned about Stephen and his love for his persecutors, asking Jesus to forgive them as he lay there dying and rocks were banging off of his body and his head and his face. As believers, when we die, we go to heaven, right? We go to heaven. We know where we're going. We're going to paradise. Our persecutors, those in our opposition, when they die without Christ, they spend eternity in hell. That should bother us. That should hurt us. And that is why when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Because we know the truth. They need Christ. We must love them beyond the suffering that they may cause us. Family members, people at work, people on the street, anybody who mocks you. When we look at verses 4 and 5 in our passage, we see the scattered people were preaching and Philip was proclaiming Christ. The people, now we need to know this, the people were not preaching as we think of preaching today. We're preaching like I am today. They were proclaiming Jesus to as many people as they had the chance. Sometimes it was in a large group and sometimes it was just one-on-one. But they were exhorting Christ with passion and fervor which is what preaching really is. It's teaching and exhorting Christ like you love him, right? We want people to see that he matters to you and you believe what he tells you in his word. But they were not standing behind a pulpit when they were doing so. So we can see this and we can understand that when we talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus with people, we are proclaiming Christ in the same way. When you talk about Jesus, how excited are you? Do you get excited? When someone asks you about your faith and you get the opportunity to share it, do you get excited? I do. I do. I hope you do. You should. Because if you want somebody to come to Christ, then we need to show that Jesus matters to us. Do we believe what he says? Does it change our life? Has it changed our life? Has it changed our outlook on things? Even in suffering, do we find joy? We'll talk more about that later. 
In verse 5, Luke tells us that Philip went to Samaria. Now, scholars say that Philip most likely went to a town called Sebaste, which is a major town in Samaria, and it is about 51 miles north of Jerusalem. And so then we ask ourselves, well, who is Philip then? Who is Philip? And Philip was one of the original seven deacons with Stephen. We learn that in Acts 6-5. He was one of the men called to distribute food to the poor and be a servant helper to the apostles, to the people. But he himself was not an apostle, although there is an apostle named Philip. This is not the same person. He is an important person, not just in this passage, but all of chapter 8 of the book of Acts. He was also known as Philip the Evangelist. But it's interesting to remember that the Samaritans were not liked by the Jews and were considered outcasts. They had, they actually had their own version of the law and their own version of the Messiah. And that was, he would have been called the Taheb, Taheb. And he would come from the tribe of Joseph, and he was nothing like Jesus. And that's really all you need to really know. But he was not Jesus. So remember the encounter that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. If you're familiar with your Bible, you remember that. Let's read John 4, 19 through 26. <clears throat> the woman said to him, who is Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then we get to the real meat of the matter. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Jesus is the Messiah. And he went to the Samaritan woman, and he announced who he was. And she took that message with his full blessing out into the Samaritans, the people whom the Jews hated. I just find that interesting. And now Philip is here in Samaria proclaiming Jesus as the one, the true Messiah, just as Jesus said in Acts 1.8, as we said, the gospel is being proclaimed to a people that are neither Jewish nor Gentile, but a people rejected by Jewish society. The Lord's love for lost people everywhere is evident in this one verse. We must understand that the Lord has called to himself people from all over the world, and he has called us to be witnesses to them. I know that this passage is descriptive and not prescriptive in nature. And if you get my email every week, I explain what that is. And Dennis has talked about it in the past. Meaning that really there's no direct commands in this passage. It's describing an event. But 
we do know that there are commands before this that do tell us to take the message out into the world. So what happened in Samaria as Philip preached the gospel to the people? What can we learn about the Lord from what was happening? Well, now let's turn to verses 6 and 7 in our passage and see what was going on. Starting in verse 6, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. You see, we see immediately in verse 6, we see that the crowds were unified and they paid attention. They were unified and they paid attention. They were of one mind and they were attentive to Philip's message of hope and God's grace. They were actively listening. They were actively listening. They were paying attention. There was a, a long time ago in a church that Sherry and I went to, there was a couple and they were uh, one of those couples that when you're in leadership in church might not have been your favorite people. And uh, they, were, they criticized a lot. And I remember I was an elder in this church and honestly I don't remember their names anymore so I, I can't do that to them. But I remember sitting behind them in church one day. It was Sherry. And, it, and they had their Bibles open, like all faithful Christians do. But inside their Bible, they had their fiction novel that they were reading during the sermon. All credibility of any criticism that they had was lost. You see, they weren't actively listening to what God was trying to tell them through our pastor. These people were actively listening to what Philip had to say. And what we learn from this is that the Lord called them and he prepared their hearts beforehand to receive his message of hope through the gospel. See, the Lord goes before us. He goes before us and prepares the hearts. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14 say this. Paul, Paul writes this, remember? This is Saul the persecutor. Paul writes this. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God who does the choosing. And so when we go and we share our faith with other people, it can be, it can be intimidating. I get that. But here's what's not intimidating. You and I can't save anyone. Jesus saves. And here's the thing. God chooses who he's going to save. Now, we could argue the points of Reformed faith, but we're not going to do that today. But this is the good news of that. It means that when we go out and share the gospel with people, we can know and have confidence that people will respond. Because God's people are everywhere. And we don't know who they are. And so we have to preach to everyone, and God will bring those people to himself. And he will save them. This is what God does. And so we can go in confidence, like Philip did, that there will be an audience that will listen attentively to what you have to say. These people were rejected, and now they're receiving the gospel because God cared about them and brought it to them. They heard and they saw the signs that Philip was performing in the name of the Lord. Now, 
let's remember this. This is important because sometimes we read passages like this and we get hung up on the signs and the wonders. But the signs and the wonders, let's, let's remember this. It's not the signs and the wonders that save, nor are they the instruments that bring faith. It is only a belief in the gospel that saves and God provides the gift of faith to us. When we read John 2, 23 through 25, we can understand this more in this passage. Jesus, he had just completed his first miracle of turning water into wine. And he had cleansed the temple and he had declared that he would destroy the temple in three days and raise it again. And as we learned over the last several weeks, this was Jesus saying that he was talking about his own body and not the temple. <clears throat> So this is what Jesus says in verses 23 through 25 in John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows. Jesus knows what's in our hearts we can put on a face, we can come to church, we can talk to people, and we can act all Christian-y all we want to. But if there is not a heart change inside of us, if we are not transformed by the gospel, you're not saved. You're just not. I'm sorry, but you're not. And I am sorry because you're not. So you need to be changed. You need the gospel to change you. Let the words of Christ and his works on the cross and his resurrection save you. We get excited about the signs and wonders. We wonder what those signs and wonders are. But it's not about the signs and wonders. It's about a heart change. It's not a delight to the eyes. We cannot fool the Lord. Again, here is what Paul says in Corinth, to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 regarding the gospel. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. This is the gospel that saved Paul. Saul, the persecutor, the gospel of Jesus is what is of first importance, not the signs and wonders that we might witness or that the Samaritans were witnessing. It is the message of Christ's death and resurrection that Philip brought that was of first importance and is always of first importance. The gospel is the meat, and the signs and wonders are the gravy, if you will. Later in Acts 16, 25-40, Paul and Silas were in prison singing hymns and the other prisoners were listening and suddenly there was a great earthquake that shook the foundation of the prison and immediately all the doors and the cells were opened and the bondage holding their hands and their feet were freed but none of the prisoners left. The jailer woke up and he saw what happened and he was about to kill himself with a sword 
But Paul cried out to let him know that all the prisoners were still there. They lit the lamps and the lights came on and the jailer fell before Paul and Silas and cried out these words. In verses 30 through 34. Then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your households. And they believed and his households were, his household was saved. But listen, when asked by the jailer how he can be saved, what did Paul say? He said, didn't, he said you don't have to believe in the miracle. He, what he didn't say, excuse me, what he didn't say was believe in the miracle of the, of the earthquake and all of the jail cells opening and all the bondage on our hands breaking and the fact that we didn't leave. No. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this is the message that was going out into Judea and Samaria. Signs and wonders. They're the things that get us excited. But we must remember it's the gospel that changes lives. In verse 7, we read verse 7 again in our passage. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Verse 7 describes the signs they witnessed. Evil, unclean spirits were being cast out. Many people who were paralyzed and disabled were healed. God was giving his powerful authority to Philip's message by performing miraculous signs through him. God's message comes with his full seal of approval and his power. The Lord was doing a great work. Lives were changed. People were being transformed by the gospel. People were being healed of their illnesses and infirmities. And people were being saved. The biggest miracle is people were repenting and they were turning to Jesus. They were receiving Jesus. These people who had been rejected by society. We're coming to Christ. Now, what was the result of the gospel being preached and lives being changed and people being healed and sin being cast out? Let's read verse 8. So there was so much, there was much joy in that city. So there was much joy in that city. There was much gladness the gospel of Jesus brings joy to those who receive it as truth. It changes everything. It changes everything. Listen to these verses that explain what I'm trying to say. These all, verses all deal with joy. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you see? Now, he's not directly talking to us when he wrote this, but in the end, he is, because we haven't seen Jesus, have we? 
If you have, I want to talk to you. But, but we haven't. But even still, we believe in him by the witness of others that are written in God's word. We believe it because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have joy. We rejoice. We are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. If that doesn't bring us joy, what will? What will? Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The reason why we have joy is because we have hope. Hope not in ourselves. Heaven forbid. I know who I am. I can't put my hope in myself. My hope must be in Jesus. He is the only one. He is the Messiah. He is the King. And so, by the power of the Holy Spirit who allows me to believe, who transformed my life and changed me and turned me into a new creation. I have hope. I have hope that when I go through suffering, when I go through difficulties in life, when you go through suffering, when you go through difficulties in life, there is hope. There is hope. Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy, joy comes with the morning. Again, again, there are times when life is hard. Maybe we were disobedient to the Lord, but his anger is only for a moment. But his favor is for a lifetime. If you turn your face to him and you gain his favor, it's for a lifetime. It's for eternity. And even though we may weep in suffering, joy comes in the morning when we are with him. Amen? Amen. Yes. Luke 15.10, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Can you imagine what that's like in heaven? There is joy. There is joy over one sinner who repents before the angels. You know, you, do you ever think of yourself as that important to God? You're that important to God. Everyone who comes to Christ is that important to God that there is rejoicing over you in heaven. I mean, this is another thing that should spur us on to share our faith and find those people whom God has called to himself so that heaven can rejoice. It is waiting. Hebrews 12.2 Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see here that Jesus not dwelling on the suffering that he was going to go through, but the joy that was going to come after that 
when he was resurrected and ascended into heaven and his gospel message was being preached out into the world and people were being saved because of the work that he did based on his father's will. He looked to the joy that was ahead, not the suffering that was the now. And we need to do the same. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, there are more verses in the Bible that talk about joy. A happiness Happiness is a feeling that comes and it goes. But joy is a choice. It's brought by a heart change because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel because it changes everything. It changes everything. If you're here this morning and, and you have never felt the joy of knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to give yourself to him. Right now, surrender and turn from your sins and receive his forgiveness. Then you will experience the joy that we've been talking about this morning. But for those of us today who call on Jesus as our Savior and are not feeling joyful, when was the last time that you went to him in prayer? When was the last time you sought him out in his word? When was the last time you asked him to speak with you? Most likely, if you're not feeling joy, it's been a while. Some of you may think that, gosh, I've, I've known Jesus, and yet I've walked away from him, and it's been so long since I talked to him, he's not going to want to talk to me anymore. I want to assure you that, that even if you did, and you turn your face back to him, he will receive you. He will receive you. You may have walked away from him, but he has not walked away from you. He has not walked away from you. If you repent today and you turn him, Jesus will, will welcome you back. Joy that comes from the gospel, joy that a whole city is filled with joy because they hear the gospel for the first time. That is the mission of God, that all tribes and nations hear his word. And he is sending his people out. This is what the book of Acts tells us, as we will continue to see. And now it's gone out in Judea and Samaria. And we're waiting for the stories of when it spreads out to the rest of the earth, which is coming by a man known as Saul, soon to be Paul. The story of God and his word is amazing. It should excite us. It shouldn't scare us. Well, maybe a little. It's okay to be terrified by God, but not so much so that you do not crawl up into his arms and call him Abba, Father. Let him love you. Love him. Go and do his will. Be his instrument of hope. 
take the hope that you have in yourself and share it with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just thank you, God, for your word and the power of it. Lord, I thank you so much for Philip and his obedience, Lord, and what he did by taking the, the message of hope out into Samaria, a place that was rejected by the Jews, but not rejected by you, Lord. I praise you and thank you, Lord, that you did not reject us either. That we Gentiles, as we're here worshiping you this morning, <clears throat> you brought the message of hope to us, Lord. You gave us the faith to believe. And here we are, Lord, worshiping you. I pray, Father, that if anyone here this morning doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would give their life to you today. And for those here this morning, Lord, who maybe feel like they've walked away from you, and they don't know their way back. I pray, God, that you would help them to repent and turn their face back to you and away from their wicked ways, Lord, and, and help them to know that you will receive them, Lord, and they will be your child. Father God, we love you, and we thank you, and we just praise you for your word. Help us to get excited about what you're going to do through our lives, Lord, and we just thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.